Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is uh, Tatiana Matthews. She's a clinical director, part of Atlanta Specialized Care. We're going to talk about people that have depression and how their brain is affected on a neurological and perhaps a physical level. So it promises to be a very interesting conversation. Tatiana, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your background, you know, your current clinical work and perhaps research work. Sure. I'm a licensed professional counselor and a certified rehabilitation counselor. I work with adolescents and adults with mental health, developmental, physical, and learning disabilities. I'm the clinical director, as you had stated earlier, and owner of Atlanta Specialized Care here in Metro Atlanta. We have two locations in suburban Alpharetta and Dunwoody, and I've been a licensed professional counselor and in the mental health field for the last 25 years. Hmm. Okay. A uh, quick question before we dive in. How have you seen uh, the patients change over 25 years? I mean, culturally, people have changed a lot. So I'm just wondering how that manifests in your practice. This is a very interesting question and probably a, a whole podcast series within itself, but a lot has changed over the last 25 five years of probably two of the most significant things that I've identified is uh, the impact of COVID and how that changed not only Metro Atlanta, but our entire country and the world, and also the change in religion and spirituality in the last five years and how that has impacted the mental health industry. Yeah. Well, can we just quickly discuss both? Like, What, what have you seen COVID do to people and Originally, what's happening to people? That's interesting. I think what I noticed here in Metro Atlanta was the increase in mental illness and specifically anxiety disorders, OCD, and substance use disorders. It was interesting. My two offices are located in two different similar socioeconomic communities in Metro Atlanta, one located in a county further south and one located in a county further north. The office that was located in the southern area of it, southern in comparison to the, the northern location, the county decided not to send their students back to school until March of 2021. The northern location that I have, most of those school districts, and there was a handful of them, they made the decision to send their kids back to school in August of 2020, all the way up to October of 2020. And it was interesting because the rates of mental illness and substance use disorders and marital issues and parenting and family dynamics, the impairment in that office located further south uh, here in Metro Atlanta in comparison to the office located in the north was so tremendous. And it really 
seemed to be linked to the fact that those that had gone back to school and had structure and activity in their families that had routine again seemed to return to some state of normal quicker. Uh, do you see a permanent effect, especially on the kids that were out of school the longest? I think that there's been permanent effects on anyone at on everyone. It's interesting. Those that struggled with anxiety, with obsessive behavior, that struggled to connect socially, uh, for many of those individuals, those challenges have been magnified for the first time in any of our lives to stay in and to be isolated was normalized, which was a welcome treat. Um, And there were benefits for a lot of families and individuals uh, to have that time to kind of slow down. But uh, I was driving through Atlanta today and noticed the number of people outside by themselves with no one in any radius to them still walking with masks on their face. And I really feel like we have an obsessive compulsive behavior that has been generated from masks. But I think in general, we're getting through what looked like our mental health epidemic seems to be stabilizing, but there are still many individuals struggling with substance use disorders that were magnified during the pandemic, really um, escalated. We see, again, an increase in anxiety disorders, a lot of developmental impacts. So academically, kids are behind. I have a senior at a local high school here in Metro Atlanta, and we were at the football game and I was located in one area of the stands and watching what they call the student section and the cheerleaders were chanting and the kids did not know how to respond to the cheers. And all of a sudden, one of the moms said, oh, my goodness, the seniors don't know the cheers. And they didn't know because they came in to school as freshmen and they didn't have students attending the football games at that point in time. So something as small as a social norm like seniors leading their class in activities such as chanting during a football game to knowing how to connect socially in the lunchroom or how to communicate effectively with your peers. So across the board, we've seen an increase in mental illness, substance use disorders, and developmental impact on our children. You mentioned, so you mentioned COVID and now I my mind lapsed. I'm sorry. The other, uh, the other major event that has changed people over the past 25 years. Uh, I said in the last five years, the five decline years. of spiritual and religious yeah. involvement. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, okay. You just said a change, so a decline. So what, what have you noticed? Uh, yes. So a couple things. One is therapy seven years ago. It was very typical for adolescents, adults to come in and talk about how their either religious belief system or their their spiritual belief system helps them manage their emotions, installs hope for the future, regulate their anxiety. And there seems to be a cultural shift that although after COVID we saw for some an increase in seeking religion and spirituality. But culturally, whether it's media, I mean, I even see it in the mental health industry here in Metro Atlanta. There are some biases that seem to lean towards not integrating spirituality or religion into the therapeutic process, despite 
every bit of research saying that those with spirituality have better mental health and recover faster. And then mm. when you add religion to that, all those numbers go even higher. And so there seems to be something shifting. And again, I mean, you see it in media as well, where there's a value shift about spirituality and religion that seems to be diminishing what could be a resource for some. And that's not to say that that's a path for everyone. And there have been individuals that have been discriminated against because they're non-religious or non-spiritual belief systems. And we need to be culturally sensitive on a greater level, just, you know, on a societal level. But it's especially important that we are really reflecting the values and beliefs of our patients that are coming in and, and not applying any of our own spiritual or religious belief systems. But I think where we've gone wrong is we've gone so far to remove what may seem like a value projection onto patients in mental health that we have removed the opportunity to build on a spiritual or religious belief system that someone may naturally have that could be extremely beneficial in their treatment process. And mm. so okay. I see that shift on a social level, and it's pretty significant in the last five years. But I also see it within my industry that it's not accessed as it would have been prior to that time frame. That's my, those are my observations and my experiences. Okay. Um, and we were going to talk about also how the brain is affected by depression. So let's, um, you know, we'll move to that. Uh, the insights you gave so far are great, but again, I wanted to get to the core of the topic that, sure. that you wanted to sure. discuss. So let's go, let's shift to that. So um, in people with depression, I don't know if this encompasses people also with bipolar or not, but um, generic, I guess, everyday depression. Uh, sure. What happens to the brains of people? Like, what do you notice? Sure. So when someone has been in, and you're correct, this does apply to many mental health diagnoses, but when someone has been in a state of depression or anxiety and it's been occurring for an extended amount of time, most of us would expect that we would have the impact on, you know, our emotional experience sad, scared, maybe irritable. But one piece that can be overlooked at times is just the impact on overall cognitive functioning. So one might expect that they feel sad, that things are less enjoyable if they're depressed or maybe that, you know, they've got worry thoughts or negative beliefs about how things they're anticipating are going to turn out. But with the cognitive functioning impact that we see, many of my patients will talk about an inability to focus, difficulty with problem solving, challenge with making decisions. Managing time, managing their space, managing their self, just their overall processing speed when being asked questions and how they're responding or their time frame they need to maybe read through something and to really understand it can be dramatically impacted. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science 
and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hmm. Does this happen uh, at all points in depression? Does it happen when they have a depressive episode? Uh, do these things get worse with time? Like, what does it look like? So, untreated, these experiences will continue to occur and oftentimes become more invasive and impact one's ability to function with their activities of daily living. When treatment begins, frequently we need to stabilize things. And if an individual is having a hard time with basic functioning, you know, how do I get up and manage my day? It's very important that we put supportive measures in place so that they are able to access their day as they once had with task completion, vocational success, academic, some sort of like social development that they're still able to manifest. Well, so how do patients report this to you? I mean, does this just, I'm sure, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but has this come from your clinical observations of the patients or are they telling you things that you know, are they aware of it? Also, these, you know, these slowdowns in their processing ability. Yes. And often times the negative belief is I'm lazy. If I tried harder, if I had a stronger will, these things would not be occurring. And unfortunately, that can be fed by family members, spouses, parents, you know, coworkers, teachers. And this has always been a component for many individuals of mental health challenges, like, again, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders. But frequently, we come at the treatment of those things from a feelings-oriented and less of what this really falls under is that umbrella of executive functioning, the ability to plan, organize, execute, again, manage self in all areas. And so frequently, it's not just the experience of I'm sad or I'm nervous. It's often, and I don't have the ability to do these other things that would give me some sense of mastery, which would result in improved sense of self. Okay, so um, again, do these so these people misinterpret it as laziness and things like that? I mean, how do you know if someone's sitting there and talking to you, you know, in, in therapy that this is going on? What are some of the things they say that may not, you know, they may not say, uh, "Oh, I can't think well. I'm thinking more slowly or reacting more slowly." What do they say if they do say it in code? I guess or in patient language. Yes. Yeah. So often, like? oftentimes, it's going to show up in their ability to appropriately meet the needs of their job. 
to appropriately need meet the needs of their academics, to appropriately meet the needs of their social relationships and managing their homes, their bills. So when someone comes in and says, you know, I'm sad, but not only am I sad, but I was someone who used to be able to work on, you know, a case for my law firm and do the research, you know, succinctly and I would meet my deadlines. And now I'm finding that I'm having to read things over and over again because I'm not really processing the information. It's not being digested and put into long-term cognitive storage. I find myself frequently distracted. I'm not finishing my tasks. I can't find my keys. When someone asks me, you know, what's for lunch and they give me three options, I'm overwhelmed and I can't make decisions. And they feel, you know, quote, unquote, crazy and are unaware that that's actually a symptom of their brain not functioning as it should be and symptomatic of, again, either their depression, their anxiety, whatever it may be when the skills were there and now they're no longer present. How do you know that's not social media and constant cell phone use, you know, fragmenting everyone's brain? It's to the degree that they're experiencing the symptoms and the onset tends to commiserate with a lower level of emotional satisfaction. Oh, so I'm sure you and me and everyone else, I mean, I feel it. My brain has been fragmented a lot by by using the smartphone and all that. How do you know where it's just natural and where it's linked with some kind of mental disorder, with depression, et cetera? Well, I do think it's very important to your point to assess the amount of technology exposure that one may have. And that's part of like the clinical assessment process. And it's, you know, important for us to make sure that we identify when we're creating comprehensive treatment plans, any potential unidentified needs. So what you're describing is technology that has become problematic, and that should be part of the assessment process. You know, we also need to make sure that we're ruling out that there's not anything organic going on. And so has the person had a physical lately? Have they met with a neurologist? Did they struggle previously with executive functioning? How are they managing their areas of life in comparison to maybe when they were younger? How were they equipped when it came to uh, managing their space and their time when they were in college? How about their ability to chunk their work, have a plan of execution for larger projects? How does that compare now? If you recognize that someone has a history and has always struggled with these things. You know, is there a potential for there's some sort of learning disability, you know, neurodivergence in some way? Could there be ADHD, autism, spectrum disorder of some type? And so we want to make sure that we rule out that there is not anything unidentified because folks will only get so much better if there is an underlying issue such as, you know, technology use disorder or some sort of gaming disorder. Or again, 
autism, ADHD, learning disability that may have always been present. But oftentimes, one of the biggest indicators is that there is a decrease in mood that is significant and activities of daily living and ability to manage self in those areas has declined in relationship to that. Wait, is it a decrease in the intensity of moods? Like, do you become flat, like a flat affect, like as if you're on Prozac or what do you mean? So Prozac doesn't equate to flat affect. However, if someone typically has strong emotional regulation skills, they can feel joy, they have energy, they are able to navigate life in the skillful way. And then after either maybe a significant life event or maybe just a change in their emotional experience, they don't find things to be enjoyable like they had previously been. Their energy level is significantly lower. They find themselves isolating more or maybe even the opposite. Maybe they're engaging in more high-risk behavior than they had or maybe more vigilant behavior where they're doing doing a lot of, of checking or seeking reassurance or spending a lot of time on things that they don't actually have control over. And they recognize that either their quality of life has declined because they are lessened in their joy and it, again, impacting their ability to navigate life as they had previously, or they're noticing that they are heightened in their level of anxiety. And again, uh, you know, there's a variety of other of other mental illnesses that, you know, could impact a person. But I think when you recognize that you usually feel like this, and now you're feeling like this, and mm. all of these things around you are changing based on the way you're feeling, that's an indicator that something is going on with your mental health. And sometimes it's yeah, easy sense. to identify what the precipitating event was. And sometimes it's not. It, it can be, you know, a typical age of onset that we see with bipolar it can be anywhere from, you know, 18 to 25. But we see mood disorders develop later in life. We see folks who have never struggled with depression, you know, retire and all of a sudden, you know, there's an onset of depression. Well, is it because they're not working anymore? Is it because they're experiencing horm hormonal changes? So I think that can be the tricky part is that, you know, when you have a significant life event, it's easy to say, this makes sense, why my brain has been impacted and it's not working like it did before. But mm -hmm. when it's a slow experience where symptoms begin to escalate, it's a little bit like the pot with the boiling water, you drop the frog into it, it's going to hop right out. You know, you put the frog in, in the cool water and turn the heater on and it's slow. A lot of times the individual doesn't even recognize how the depression or anxiety or mental health issue is escalating until things are completely unmanageable. Does this, uh, have you seen this happen under your care? You know, while you're doing therapy on somebody or um, do people come to you just kind of in the aftermath of it after it's gone on for a long time? What I have found is the experience where people begin to feel better, either because they've been participating in therapy, they're doing things organically that are creating change, they're understanding what their diagnosis is. So they're seeing how it's showing up in their life. They're no longer judging it. They're putting appropriate supports in place. So they're getting their accommodations. They're developing skills to manage big emotions that maybe would have previously sabotaged them. Or even maybe they're at this point, they've added medication and things are beginning to 
improve measurably and they look back and they see where they were and it can be jarring sometimes how Mm -hmm. mental illness snuck up on them and not until they felt better did they recognize how badly they were when they initiated care. I didn't realize that this sneaks up on people so much. So has anyone written much about that or talked about it? You know, how does it sneak up on people? What does it look like? You know, what are a couple of avatars or situations you've seen that would be good examples of? So, you know, I'll give you an example of college kids. We, every fall, get inundated with college freshmen who go to college And they are home by November because they've either had a psychotic break, you know, their first significant manic episode, their first significant major depressive episode, generalized anxiety. And a lot of these kiddos, inklings of the symptoms were there prior to leaving for school. But you get them finally to school and it is a pressure cooker. There's the transition. There's learning to be away from home. There's learning to live with a new roommate, you know, learning to manage maybe their executive functioning where they might have been more prompt dependent. And mom and dad did a lot of that for them. And, you know, by November, they're sleeping all day and they're not going to class at all. And so... It, you know, they're coming back home, not necessarily because they're fouled out, but because their ability to function has become non-existent. Mm. But oftentimes when you meet with parents and the college kiddo, you recognize like some of this stuff was brewing when they were oh. in high school. What would be some signs of that? Um, I had given you the example a minute ago of managing maybe their academics. Maybe mom and dad did a lot of prompting, a lot of reminding, a lot of pressuring. And so we might have a kid who was like pretty smart, but scattered. Maybe we saw over the summer that there may have been more sleeping, a little more isolation. Uh, Maybe, you know, kiddo or mom describes that, you know, they've always been a worrier and really vigilant about their academics or like, what was going on with them with their extracurricular perfectionistic. And so those would be some examples of things that we might hear that would indicate some of this was present prior to leaving for school. So when at home, there's a, you know, you're in somewhat of a cocoon and some houses are very supportive. So these tendencies are in safe harbor. But then when you go out on your own college, like you said, roommate, new place, you got to meet people, you got a lot of work. There's the temptation of partying you know, relations with other people at the college. Yeah, it's, I can see how uh, that stuff all of a sudden can just, I guess, amplify to the point where they they become dysfunctional. Well, what's interesting is that there are many times where I'll have mom and dad say, I just thought if they got out of this community that things would be different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that false belief system that change in environments will create change in lives or change in mood. And the reality is that environmental changes typically only magnify what's not working. You know, like my oldest daughter went off to college, you know, so she's finishing her first semester. And at first it was like, you know, every other day there's a problem and that is every few days. And then, it's you know, it's gotten better and better. But I guess, uh, you know. I don't know if you say we're lucky or whatever, but we lucked out in the fact that she's okay. And there's still a lot of difficulties and all that and hardships. But um, yeah, I understand. She, like, she like, has uh, the cognitive functioning to problem solve. And <laughs> she has the emotional regulation skills to manage 
and to navigate life in a way that's skillful. And you're giving her the opportunity to grow where oftentimes when children are still in the home, we swoop in Mm -hmm. and fix things and we rob our kids of the gift of failure especially the gift of failure in the safety of the net that we provide for them. I caught myself doing it the other day with my daughter. She, I could tell was off and I I asked her if something was wrong and she explained it to me. And I said, you know, I wish you would have shared that with me. You know, we could have talked about that. And she said, mom, my life is not always meant to be easy. (laughs) Touche, my daughter. I was so impressed with her. I was like, you are absolutely right. And it's not my job to make life easy for you. That's hilarious. Well, that's so, really cool. Yeah. You taught her well, you know. Your daughter, she's been blessed with, you know, the ability to to evolve, to meet mm. the situation based on what it is. It's great. She's developing. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, she said, oh, I'm 18 now, but then again, help me. Oh, I'm 18 now, but then again, I don't want to do this. I mean, you know, it's like, well, uh, there's good and bad that comes with it. So, sorry. Yeah, that's And finding that boundary as a parent where how can I support without enabling is a very fine line. True. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I always I say know. never let a never do for a child what a child is capable for doing themselves. And sometimes mm. it's hard to weed through what are they ca- really capable of and what are they not capable of, especially if you know, they're heading down the mental health path and things that may have been accessible to them previously as their mood declining is not as intuitive. Mm, okay. So going back to, you know, people's brains being changed, but so what is it? The the stress is acting as uh, like, you know, life is the anvil and the stress is the, the hammer pounding on them and reshaping them. Like, how would you characterize what comes first? Um, you know, maybe small predispositions that are then aggravated by stress lead to true dysfunction, or is it the stress itself creates dysfunction? You know, how would you characterize how this happens? It works both ways. Just like the pancreas may decide that it's not going to produce insulin anymore, and we develop, you know, type 1 diabetes at a later age of onset or, you know, for other organic reasons, you know, our our pancreas can't keep up with insulin production and, you know, we develop type 2. The brain, just like any other part of our body, can stop functioning as it was intended to. And so things may not be firing or receiving. The reuptake may not be occurring as it has in the past. And those chemical occurrences in our brain, you know, they result in emotion. And when we see that the brain is not functioning as it should, and, you know, we either have heightened anxiety or, you know, impaired mood with depression, it results in cognitive disorders. And so under that umbrella, again, of cognitive disorders is the, you know, the the inability to focus, the inability to manage time, space, all of that. On the other side, when we are experiencing periods of high stress or when we've had a traumatic incident, our brain also physically changes. If it's, you know, periods of stress, our brain is meant to function in a certain way to kick our adrenaline in to help us survive. The problem lies when that level of stress is elongated and it's like the car battery that the doors have been open far longer than the battery had life to 
Mm. keep the car going. When you talk about that from a trauma perspective, you know, a traumatic incident can create more or less a surge that changes brain function. And, you know, that is where self-care, you know, what you eat, how much water you're drinking, your exercise, your sleep is, you know, a basic way to help heal the brain or help the brain tolerate increased stress. Um, But sometimes that's not enough. And that's where medication is helpful, where it a little bit like a cast for a broken bone. You know, you get the right medicine on the brain for the right amount of time. And we cross our fingers that it's going to act like, you know, how we jump a car that eventually when you take the clamps off or titrate the person off the medication, that that brain's going to be up and running without it. So are there protocols like nutritional support protocols, exercise recommendations, et cetera? I mean, it it sounds like just the, uh, you know, let's say talk therapy or other therapies may not be enough in some situations. If we do all the talk therapy in the world, but someone is staying up, and watching TV till three in the four in the morning and then getting up at seven to go to work, that person is probably not going to get better. We've got to have, you know, sleep hygiene in place. We, you know, need to be drinking plenty of water because that helps the electrical activity in our body. We need to be looking nutritionally at our protein, you know, our complex carbohydrates, making sure that we're stabilizing our blood sugar because that impacts mood. Physical activity is essential for optimal brain function. You know, getting that physical when you're starting therapy with someone, making sure there's no other potential organic causes. I mean, you know, you get a kid in who's like, my stomach hurts. It's really easy to think, oh, they must have anxiety. Well, I have had scenarios in my office where it was celiac disease. No wonder why the kid had stomach ache because they were eating waffles every morning before they went to school. They weren't anxious about going to school. They were having a gluten response. Or, you know, a kid who mom is saying, you know, or an adult is saying, you know, I'm exhausted all the time. I'm, you know, I'm wondering if it's a depression. And we identify that there is a sleep disorder of some sort. Or maybe there's, you know, feelings of depression. We recognize there's a vitamin D deficiency. So, you know, the the building blocks of recovery, you know, we have to come at things from the primal level first. And so ensuring our physical health increases the likelihood, but does not guarantee that we can reverse any sort of mental challenges that we may be experiencing from a mental health perspective. But it's a good starting point. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your your work is a lot more comprehensive and functional maybe than other people's because you're looking at supplementation, diet, sleep, social stresses, et cetera. So that's, that's good. It sounds comprehensive. It has to be. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor in addition to being a licensed professional counselor and certified rehabilitation counselors. Their goal is to help the folks they work with access the same life that their typical peers would despite disability, whether it's mental health disability, developmental disability, physical disability. And so we have to look at the medical, the organic part. We look at the vocational, the academic, the spiritual, the social. Wraparound services really are what help folks get optimal outcomes. Okay. Well, very good. What areas do you serve in uh, uh, Georgia? I don't know if you if you work with people in other states, but if someone's listening and they live in a certain sure. spot, like, uh, where can people, you know, 
Yeah. So I'm in Atlanta. Um, our practice have two offices, one in Alpharetta, Georgia, and one in Dunwoody, Georgia, both suburban areas of Metro Atlanta. I am licensed also in the state of North Carolina, so we'll see folks virtually as well. And so in Metro Atlanta, we do a lot of in-person. We do um, facilitate virtual sessions. You know, everything from pediatrics to geriatrics, our practice serves really the whole gamut of mental health, addiction disorders, substance use specifically. We do a lot of work and lots of trauma work. We do a lot with developmental disabilities, a lot with executive functioning. So the smart but scattered autism that is not diagnosed until later in life, eating disorders. Uh, So we serve, you know, pretty wide area in Metro Atlanta and again, can do virtual in North Carolina and and really offer a lot of different resources, uh, our moderate sized mental health practice. What's what's a recommendation for listeners that, you know, aren't in your coverage area, but still want to find out about what kind of uh, programs there are and how they can get help? So I have a website, atlantaspecializedcare.com, and those who are not in Metro Atlanta that are seeking certain interventions can contact me through the website, and I can help through my national network identify resources, hopefully for the area that they live in. Mm, Okay. Excellent. Well, Tatiana, thank you so much for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.